Now, I'm, I'm going to ask you if you would turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. We are this morning reading from verses 5 through 10. If you're able, if you would please stand. And just as a reminder, we have a number of things trying to make life easier for the body of believers during this season. If you need to go back into the kids' gym, there's space back there. The sermon can be heard back there. You can spread out. If you need to get outside into the hallway where things are a little bit less busy, you could do that. The sermon's also out there. And we also now have an 1130 service that's outside. If you need to be outside, that is also available. So all those options uh, for those who are worshiping with us this morning. Now again, let me direct your attention to the Word of God from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, beginning in verse 5. These are the words of Jesus Christ. It says in verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once? And recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty? Would you please be seated and would you join me again in a word of prayer? Father, I ask that the reading of your word and the preaching of your word, Lord God, would be worked by your spirit in the hearts of your people, that it would be used within us, in our hearts, to sanctify us to show us our need of you, and to move us to glorify you both in word and in deed. We ask, Lord, that you would do this here this morning among this body of believers, that you would do it even now through my word, by the work of your spirit, for the glory of your Son, that you would conform us to his image. We ask this in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. For those of you who have ever had the opportunity to work with children, or for those of you who have your own children, or your own nieces and nephews, or even your own grandchildren, you know that there are opportunities, unplanned opportunities, where we have the, the privilege and the opportunity to be able to speak to our children about very important heart issues, right? They kind of present themselves at the most interesting or unique of moments, but we have those opportunities to speak to the hearts of our children. I think of this in my own house, and often there's a particular phrase that gets uttered that provides us the opportunity to speak to our children, and it is the phrase, I want more. Usually it's said with the pounding of fist or the the raising of the voice, I want more, give me more. 
Sometimes that's my son when he's wanting more dessert or more sugar. Sometimes it's my daughter when she's wanting more sports. Or I've beat her in a game of ping pong like five times in a row, and she just wants one more opportunity to try and beat me. Sometimes it's my nephews wanting more video games, okay? But it always provides the opportunity to speak about idolatry. That's the nature of idolatry. We, we all want more. We crave the created world, and we want more of it. We have not enough to satisfy ourselves, and it is verbalized by the declaration of, I want more. And I often get to tell my own children, my own family, it's not unique to you. As adults, we do the same thing. I want more of my career. I want more of my job. I want more money. I want more cars. I want more girlfriends or boyfriends. I want more of whatever. And it's a declaration of the heart in the pursuit of the idols which we think will satisfy us. But you know what's great? It's not always bad to want more. As a matter of fact, that comes from a very biblical concept in the way that God has created us. A desire for more is part of the created order. And the way we see this expressed in the Bible is the desire for more of God Himself. We have been designed to want more of our Creator. We've been designed to want more of God. And we see it throughout the pages of Scripture. This morning we see it in the voice of the apostles who say in verse 15 to the Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith. You see, it's just another way of saying to Jesus, I want more. And you see, faith is a divine perception of God and the things that He says, okay? They're saying to Jesus, I want more of God. I want to be able to perceive more of my Father. I want to be convinced of, in my heart of the things that He says and He promises. I want more, and I want to see more of Him. You see, this is not unique of the apostles, though. In this way, the apostles are very much like us, right? This congregation, I would be surprised if one of us didn't utter this phrase this past week or, or think this very thing this past week. I want to see more of God. Whether it's when we're in our lows of lows, in the midst of the valley where we say, man, this is so hard. If I could just see more of God, it would be a little bit easier. Or I could see more of what God is doing. We say this when we're wavering in our faith, don't we? If I could just see more of God, I would be convinced. If I could see more of what God is doing. When we struggle to be obedient, if we could just see more of God, it would make obedience all the more easy, wouldn't it? See, the, the question the apostles asked this morning is a very relevant question. It is a question we've all asked, whether we've verbalized it or we've thought it. Can't we see more of God? Won't you increase our faith? And so if the question is relevant, then so is the response from Jesus. You see why the passage this morning is so relevant. And so here's what we're going to talk about. The title of the sermon, in case you didn't see it, and the insert in the bulletin is very simple. Shall we see God more clearly? Will we see our God more clearly? It's the question that Jesus deals with this morning. And three observations, I think, from the passage 
that will answer that question as we look through His words in Luke chapter 17. First of all, as we look at this passage, the first thing to note is that this desire to see our God more clearly is a desire that is a good desire that comes from the followers of Christ. Again, in verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, Lord, increase our faith. You have to understand why they're saying this to Jesus. You, we have to reflect on the passage that we looked at last week. And you remember what was happening last week? Jesus opens chapter 17, okay? He begins this portion uh, speaking to His disciples, and He speaks about the subject of sin. You remember that from last week? I hope you remember that. Speaks about the subject of sin. And you remember in the course of four verses, Jesus sets a very high bar for His disciples. He essentially says to them concerning the very serious subject of sin, you are to not be involved with tempting, you are to rebuke one another, and you're to forgive like seven times, 70 times, okay? For every time that someone sins against you, forgive them. And I imagine on the heels of that, the disciples are saying to one another, how in the world are we supposed to do that? Is Jesus serious? Does He really mean forgive seven times 70? Does He really mean, mean that we're to rebuke one another actively every day? How in the world are we to do that? Now, we can probably resonate with that, right? We often open up a passage, we begin reading, and we say, wait a second, Jesus can't really mean. How does He expect me to do that, right? And in light of that, the disciples, they have an idea, okay? That obedience seems to be really severe. How are we to do that? Oh, I've got an idea. Let's go to Jesus and let's ask Him, increase our faith. If we could see more of God and more of what God is doing in this moment, maybe, just maybe, it would make obedience all the more easy for us. And so they are requesting of Jesus, Lord Jesus, increase our faith. Help us to see more of our God and to see more of what He's doing in this moment. And so this morning, I, I want you to know, as you consider this passage, I want you to know that this is a mark of a, of a true Christian. This is evidence of the work of the Spirit of God in our hearts. Throughout the Bible, we will find character after character where the Spirit of God is working in them that they will desire to see more of God and more of what God is doing. Think of a few examples. Mark chapter 9, Jesus is about to heal the boy. And what does his father say? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Essentially saying to Jesus, I want to see more of God. I want to see with more clarity in my own heart what God is doing in this moment. The disciples again and again, they say to Jesus, show us the Father. And what does Jesus say to them? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. But they're always saying, show us more of the Father. This is repeated again and again in Scripture. It is evidence of the work of the Spirit of God in your heart. If you as a Christian are saying in your low moments or in your challenges or when your faith is wavering, if you are saying, man, if I could just see more of God, this would be a lot easier. That is evidence of the Spirit of God working in your heart. There's no doubt. Let me put it in a, maybe a more simple way. Okay? If you've ever been in love, okay, most of you have ever been in love. Okay, and if you, let's say you've, you've never been in love, but you've seen a movie where somebody's in love, okay? And you've probably all, see, at the very least, you've seen a movie with somebody who's in love, okay? When, when somebody's in love, do they desire to 
be closer to the other person or to be further away from the other person, right? And you're saying, what an absurd question. Don't ask silly questions, pastor, okay? Do they desire to know more of the other person or to know less of the other person? Do they desire to, be, uh, uh, to, to see them more clearly or to not see them more clearly? To know more of their characteristics or to know less of the characteristics? We could go through the list. It's obvious. Of course they want to be closer. Of course they want to know more of. Of course they want to see them and all the characteristics and, and everything about them. That's the truth, okay? What happens, what the Bible describes the work of the Spirit in our hearts is that the Spirit of God begins to cultivate affections in our hearts which we don't normally have, okay? So in the dating relationship or when somebody's falling in love, what's happening is they're seeing more of the other person, they're falling in love with them, and their affections are changing, and their heart is being drawn to the other person, and now they have a new affection they didn't have before. When the Spirit of God begins His work in the hearts of believers, He cultivates new affections. We begin to have affections for our Father that we would not otherwise have, and we desire to know more of Him, and we desire to be closer to Him, and we desire to see more of His character and more of His work in our lives. It is just evidence of salvation. And so when the apostles and the disciples say in verse 5, Lord, increase our faith, it's just the natural outflow of the work of the Spirit of God within them. If you're in Christ, it ought to be also your disposition. Show me more of the Father. I want to see more of God. I want to know more of what He's doing. It is beautiful to me, and I desire to see it. Now, if the question the disciples ask in verse 5 is a good question, Lord, increase our faith, then isn't Jesus' response kind of strange? Isn't it kind of strange? Now, I've gotten tired of saying, isn't Jesus' response kind of strange? Because it feels like we're saying that every chapter what we expect Jesus to do is usually not what Jesus does. And that's because God is higher and more wise and perfect than we could ever conceive of, okay? But Jesus doesn't do what we would expect. I would expect the disciples would say, Lord, increase our faith. And Jesus would say, okay, Peter, more faith. John, more faith. Andrew, more faith. Boom, y'all got more faith, okay? It's not what he does. Jesus does something very different. You see, he gives Two different examples that give us the impression that he is saying to the disciples, you don't need any more faith. The faith you have been given is sufficient. And the first example is the example of the mustard seed, right? If you had faith like a mustard seed, just a little bit of faith, if you had just a little bit of faith, you could say to this mulberry tree right here, get up, be uprooted, and plant yourself in the sea. And I've thought about that a lot this week. I don't even know what that looks like for a mulberry tree to be planted in the sea. But Jesus says it. You see, the message is very simple. If you had just a little bit of faith from the Holy Spirit, the faith that the Spirit gives you, even if it's just a little bit, can work miracles. It can do miraculous things. You don't need more faith. But then Jesus moves into the second example, the parable that he gives beginning in verse 7. And I want to talk about this parable and I, and I want to just warn you, okay, if you're reading the parable literally and you're thinking, well, this is, a, this is an account of a master and a slave and, okay, what's going on here? You're going to trip over this parable because you're going to read it and you're going to say, what a cruel master and what an unjust guy and how dare he do that to the servant and it doesn't fit your categories, I know, all right? But let's not read the parable like that. Let's simply ask the question, what is Jesus trying to emphasize in this parable? 
And here's the, the second point on your handout. It's very simple, okay? Jesus essentially says to his disciples, for a time, you will not see the Father more clearly. And for a time, you must labor according to your duty. That's, that's the message in this parable, all right? Now, let me introduce the parable. There is two characters in this parable. There is a master and there is a slave. It's the Greek word doulos. It's the word that Paul often uses to describe himself. He is a servant of God, a slave of God, okay? And the servant in this parable, you have to understand, you have to understand, the servant in this parable has a number of duties, of obligations, of requirements to the master. And here are some of the obligations that, that the servant has, okay? He's to work the ground. He's to keep, take care of the animals. He's to maintain the fields, okay? But he is also to maintain the household, to make sure that the house is clean, that the things are in order, that the master has his food, that everything within and without, outside and in, is maintained. That is the duty of the servant in this parable, okay? So, if you understand that, you'll begin to understand the question that Jesus asked. Here's what he says in verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Now, that question, it, it actually, in the original Greek, it says, will any of you say, come and recline? That's all it says in the Greek. And it's meant to be written in a way that almost has a very chill feel, Okay. As if Jesus is saying, well, any of you, if you have a servant who's out in the field doing his work, doing part of his labor, will any of you say, hey, come in and hang out with me, okay? Come in and chill with us. We're just going to kick back and relax. When Jesus asks the question, it is meant to be heard as absolutely absurd, okay? Absolutely absurd. As a matter of fact, I imagine that when Jesus asked the question that the disciples might have like laughed out loud, a belly laugh, Okay? They would have said, oh, Jesus, stop kidding around. Why are you making such a joke, Jesus? This, no master would say to a servant, if he had done half of his work, would say to him, come in and chill out with me. We're going to relax, okay? What a silly idea for you to say, Jesus. You have to understand this about the parable. Jesus is speaking to a group of men who are in a particular culture at a particular time, and they are meant to hear Jesus' question as absolutely absurd. No master would say this to his servant. What a crazy idea, Jesus. Okay? That's the picture that Jesus is painting in this parable. Now let me tell you something about this parable and Jesus' words here, especially in the last third of Jesus' life and ministry, he is often communicating to those who are listening a lot about who God is and who man is, right? And that's what he's doing in this parable. And in all of the words of Jesus, if I was to summarize the last third of Jesus' ministry, from Luke chapter 16 through the end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus again and again is emphasizing the fact that God is everything and that God is all and that man is nothing, okay? It's part of Jesus' message here in this parable, that God is everything and that man is nothing. That's why, as he describes in this parable, that's why we are depicted as the servant, as the slave, as the one who has forfeited his identity, the one who has no authority in and of himself, 
the one who cannot say what he will do or what he will not do, but is under the complete instruction and authority of the master. It is why, for instance, Jesus uses the word commanded twice in this parable, that the servant was commanded, and will he not do all that he was commanded? You see, the picture that Jesus is painting is that the Creator God has created us, and we are His creation. And doesn't the Creator have the authority over the created to tell it to do whatever it desires to do? He has created it to be in such a way. He has made it for a purpose. And so the Creator may say to the object, I have made you for this purpose. I was thinking this, this past weekend, I was installing a new uh, handle on a door, and it was a digital handle, so I'd never done that before. It had batteries in it, and I was uh, installing the door handle and looking at the manual and reading the manual and thinking, oh, this, this handle is not performing as it was designed to, okay? The buttons were not working, the codes were not working. Every time I'd hit the thing, it would do the opposite thing, and the, the thing that was created was not operating as it was created to be, all right? This is the message that Jesus shares in this parable. The master has the authority over the servant. The creator has the authority over the created. And he commands that which is created to perform according to its design. Okay, that's the word commanded again. The word commanded is here. The servant is commanded. God tells us how we are to operate according to design through the commandments. We read the commandments. It's God's instruction for us about how we are to live. Now, let me say something, okay? That's part of the message in this parable, and I imagine that for most of you, that's a really hard thing to digest. And I, I would say that for Christians in this generation, okay, Christians in this generation, that's a harder concept to understand than it has been for any Christian in any generation in the history of Christianity. And you might say, well, that's a sweeping statement. But it's a sweeping statement because we are more free than any generation of any Christians ever in the history of Christianity, right? We're more free. And so we conceive of our freedom and you know, the freedom that we've been given in this country, it's a very biblical freedom, right? Because we know that we have been created equal and that no man has a, an intrinsic inherent authority over another man. No man can own another man. There is freedom and there is liberty and those things are good things. But you see, it's a very short jump from the idea of no man owning another man to assuming that no being owns another man. And we may very easily get to the conclusion that because we're free, then we're free from everything. And we have no obligation and we have no duty. But one idea, freedom from the authority of men over other men, is very biblical. The other idea, freedom from anything in all of the universe, the freedom from any being in all of the universe, is a very unbiblical idea. We have been created by a creator, and we are now obligated to him. But see, at, at that very idea, because of the freedom we have, we kind of bristle at that idea, don't we? It rubs us the wrong way. We read this passage, and we say, how dare you call me a servant? I have no obligation. How dare the master command the servant to do certain things and not do other things? How dare he tell him that he must perform all of his duty? It doesn't sit well with us. But the message and Jesus' parable is very simple. You see, Christians, for a time, you will not see your Father very clearly. For a time, we could describe our faith as being weak. We have a weak faith. We see in a mirror dimly lit. One day, we will see face to face. 
but for a time, we will not see him very clearly. And we are called during that time period to do all that is required to us by obligation to the Father. The word in verse 10 that's translated as duty says that you will do his duty. It's the word that means a moral obligation. A moral obligation. The servant is morally obligated to the master to do all that the master has required for this time where we see the Father only through a mirror dimly lit, we are obligated. And you know what the beautiful irony of that obligation is? The beautiful irony of the obligation that we have to God to do all that He has commanded us, the beautiful irony about that is that through those obligations and through the duty that God requires us to obey Him, He actually works to increase our faith, doesn't He? One author, I thought, put it very well. He put it like this. This patient, unwearied toil, this deep sense of indebtedness to God who loves man with so intense and so strange a love, this feeling that we can never do enough for him, that we have been taxed all of our energies to the utmost in his service, that we have done little or nothing, and yet that all the while he is smiling on us with a smile of indescribable love. This is what will increase the disciples' faith. And only this. See what he's saying there is that process plays out where we are obligated to our creator and we continue to obey him and in obedience we pursue him. And in the midst of that we realize that even our greatest obedience is not really great to God. Even the very things that we give him a sacrificial love towards him is not even that great to God. But in the midst of that as he smiles upon us and as he is satisfied with us because of his son, in the midst of that process, our faith is increased. And we grow in faith, and we begin to see more of our God, and we begin to see more of the work that He is doing, and we grow to love Him more and to trust Him more. It's a beautiful thing that God has done. Now, let me tell you, if, if you don't get that, you won't get the last point, okay? It'll make no sense to you. So if you don't get that we have been created by our Creator and we are obligated to Him, and that for a time we see Him not very clearly, but yet we have a duty, a responsibility to Him. If you don't get that, you won't understand what I'm about to say, okay? You'll stand here and you say, well, this whole thing, it sounds kooky and crazy. What does this guy mean, right? But if you comprehend that in Jesus' parable, the last point here is, is going to be the best point, Okay? be absolutely beautiful if you comprehend that. So the last point of this passage, I ask the question to begin with, shall we see our God more clearly? Shall we see Him more clearly? And we know it's a good desire. It's a good desire to see Him more clearly. For a time we will not, and we continue to work according to our created obligation, okay? But one day we will indeed commune with our Creator. One day we will surely see Him Clearly, again, that's what the Apostle Paul means in 1 Corinthians 13. We see now in a mirror dimly lit, but one day we will see face to face. We will fully know even as we have been fully known. That's what Paul's referencing. Speaks about that very thing. You see, we see her here in this passage in verse 8. Okay, here's what verse 8 says. Will the master not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink? Now here's the part, okay? Pay attention, last part. And afterward, you will eat and drink. 
and afterward you will eat and drink. Let me tell you something. The life of the Christian is one life that is looking forward to the afterward. Okay? The life of the Christian is the life of the believer in God who is looking forward to this moment described with these very short words, afterward you will eat and drink. See, you remember how I told you how absurd was Jesus' question. How the disciples would have been laughing, oh Jesus, don't make jokes. Why would the master ever invite the servant in halfway through his work, okay? See, this all makes sense then of the afterward part. If we understand that we are a servant and God is the master, if we understand that God is everything and that we are nothing, if we understand that we've been created and He is the creator and we are obligated to Him, we have a duty. And if we understand, as this passage says, that we are unworthy servants, that we fail to do that which has been obligated to us, that we fail to do as we have been created to do, then the words at the end of verse 8, they are all the more beautiful. Afterward, you will eat and drink. See, the, the beauty of this passage is that Jesus is saying to his disciples, one day, one day you will see God clearly. One day you will know him as he has known you. One day, your faith will be increased. As a matter of fact, faith and experience will meet together, and you will perfectly know Him, and you will perfectly see Him, and you will understand His plans, and it will be beautiful. It will be amazing. The life of the Christian is looking forward to this very moment. And let me tell you something. The, the meal, the supper, the dinner that Jesus describes here in this passage in verse 8, the one that we afterward will eat and drink at, that supper is the one that the Apostle John saw in a vision, okay? It's not any ordinary dinner. It's not a simple meal. Here's how John saw it in the vision given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he said, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." And then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus, in this passage, is speaking about a dinner, a supper unlike any we've ever experienced, where we will be joined with our Savior. And we will sit to dine with Him in glory. And the angels and the saints and all of us together will be singing hallelujah. Hallelujah for the Lamb of God has been slain. And we have been purchased and we now have victory over the grave. and Victory over death. And we now see Him face to face. See, brothers and sisters... This parable of the Lord Jesus Christ leads us through the question, shall we see our God more clearly? For a time, for a short time, we will not. 
though we yearn for it. For a time we will not, yet we labor as those who have been created by our God, obligated to obey Him according to all His commands. We labor yearning to see our Father, and one day we will perfectly commune with Him. And there will be no more tears, there will be no more suffering, there will be no more wandering, no more looking in faith for some clarity in our hearts. We will truly see Him more clearly. And in that day, there will be great rejoicing among the saints of God, singing His praises. You see, the disciples here were asking for faith. Lord, increase our faith. And they were asking not only in a measure that was sufficient for obedience, but for a faith that would exclude all uncertainty and doubt. They were looking for the crown of labor before their work was done. They were looking for the wreath of a conqueror before they had fought the battle. And Jesus says to them, and He says to us, be patient, my beloved. Be patient. One day you will receive the crown and the wreath. One day your faith will meet experience. Until then, know and trust that the small seed of faith that has been given to you by the Spirit of God will carry you unworthy servants to do all that God requires of you. To finish the race and be presented blameless before the throne by the blood of Jesus. That's the message of this parable. One day we will see our Savior face to face. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, and we thank you that through him we have the assurance of things hoped for. We thank you, our Father, that even as we live now in this age of in-between, having received Jesus, having your Spirit at work within us, yet yearning for a future day, we thank you that you give us all that we need. Faith is small as a mustard seed through your Spirit. And so we ask, Lord God, that you would help us to trust and rest in you, that you would help us, our Father, to obey you according to the faith that you have given us, to glorify you in all that we say and do, and to speak and act as those who are waiting for the afterworld, who are waiting for the day when we will sit with you and we will see our Savior face to face, and we will feast in glory. Help us to live and act as people of God who are waiting for that day. And in the meantime, Lord, sustain us. Give us the faith we need. Bless and encourage your people by the work of your Spirit. We ask all of this in Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. Amen.